Exodus is the story we all share, the story of the people of God. He leads us out to draw us in. From the people of Israel to the church today, God delivers and dwells with his people. This is the story of redemption, rebellion, revelation. This is the story of Exodus. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm glad to be up here again. And I don't know about you, but I've been loving this series in Exodus. And I'm a Bible nerd, and I just love everything about the Israelite encampment and what it teaches us about Jesus in our lives today. So I'm excited to be able to further us along in that journey this morning. But before we get there, I want to let you know a little bit about where my wife and I are at. And we're in a little bit of a tough season. And that's because we are parenting our only son, Noah, and just over a month ago, he turned two years old. And I don't know if we were just naive, but we thought Noah was the perfect kid. I mean, when he was one, when he was one, he would listen to everything we talked, we told him to do, right? He would just do it. And he loved us so much, and it was so sweet seeing him learn how to walk and learn how to talk and learn all these new words and grow his vocabulary. It was so much fun watching him grow up. But when he turned two, and any parents in the room will know this, something changed. I mean, it was like a flip of the switch. All of a sudden, that kid who was so good and listening is now so disobedient, and he wants his own way. He, at two years old, is thinking that the world revolves around him, and that Alice and I have to do everything that he wants us to do. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can admit that we're living in a culture that kind of does the same type of behavior. We're living in a culture that's all about me, that prioritizes self above everything else. Do whatever you want to feel good. Whatever you want to do, that'll make you happy. And we live in this culture, and oftentimes we take that perspective with us when we approach Scripture. And oftentimes that works pretty well. A couple of weeks ago, we were in uh, the parting of the Red Sea, Exodus 14. Amazing story. And it's so easily you can just put yourself in Moses' shoes. And when you're dealing with a very difficult situation, you don't know the way out, you pray to God, Lord Jesus, just part the sea in front of me. And that's pretty beautiful. And you can do that. But it doesn't work so well when you come to the blueprints of the tabernacle and the building of this tent, you can't find yourself in this kind of story. You can't put yourself in Moses' shoes like you did at the Red Sea. And so what do we do with this? I think this is where a lot of us have trouble. If you ever started uh, reading a Bible in a year plan, this is where everyone falls off the wagon. Because you don't know what to do with yourself. You don't see yourself in this story, and it's really hard to understand and get your footing in this text. And that's where we're going to be at today. But the first thing I want to let you know as we talk about this passage is that it's not about you. And for some of you, that makes you really upset. And that's okay. And that's okay. Because ultimately, I will show you how, you, how this story leads to God's fulfillment and what he does for you. But this is just a piece of the story. And we're going to be looking at how it fits into God's redemptive plan throughout history. I'm excited to share that with you today. But before we jump into scripture, let's go ahead and bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we get to spend learning about your word and what it teaches us today. Lord, I'm excited for how you're going to show us what you want us to do in light of the scripture this morning. Lord, so I pray that your spirit would be upon us and that you would speak to us now. Lord, if there's anything in our hearts that's hindering us from getting the full grasp of what you want to teach us this morning, I pray that you would get rid of it. Help us focus upon your word and what you want to do in and through us this morning. So in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right into this, but before we do, I want to just go ahead and give us a little bit of a recap on where we're at in the Exodus story. 
So at the beginning of Exodus, right when we started, we saw the Israelites were in this slavery. They were in oppression in Egypt, and they had been there for 400 years. And in this oppression, they cried out to God. They said, God, help us. We're being an oppressed people. And God hears them. He hears their cry, and he wants to help them. So what does he do? He raises up Moses. He speaks to him in the burning bush, and he is the leader who's going to deliver the Israelites out of their oppression. And so God uses Moses to enact the ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And then Pharaoh, at the end of that, finally lets the Israelites go. But he quickly changes his mind, and he starts chasing after the people. And then he confronts them at the Red Sea. And this is where that grand miracle happens, and God delivers his people from the Israelites. And since that great act, God has been leading and providing for his people in the wilderness. He gives them manna every day, and he's turned bitter water into drinkable water, and we've seen God just provide. But all throughout the story, we start to see a progression where God is starting to get closer and closer to his people and love on his people even more and even more. And God loves his people so much that he actually wants to enter into a covenant with them. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. This is where the Ten Commandments were given and the law and the stipulation of what it will look like to have a relationship with God. And so today, we see this progression start to formalize even further. Now that they have formalized their covenant, God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 25 that he wants him to build him to build God a tabernacle, a dwelling place where God will live. He tells him all about the details of how he wants to construct it, and then he wants to put it right in the middle of the Israelite encampment so people can worship him. You see God taking these steps throughout the story. He's getting closer and closer to his people, and now he wants to live and he wants to dwell among the Israelites. For the Israelites, this, this is amazing news because as we've seen throughout this journey, they are a messed up people. They don't deserve God's love. They don't deserve his grace. They don't deserve his presence. But God loves his people so much that he wants to live with them and he wants to dwell with them. He's entered into this covenant where he wants to continually be with his people. So we're in Exodus chapter 25, and they gave me the wonderful opportunity to talk about the seven chapters that are all about the building of the tabernacle. And there's extensive detail there. And it's easy to get lost in it, but I just want to highlight just a couple of things about the tabernacle that you guys should think about. So the first thing is that the tabernacle was set up into three distinct tiers. There was the outer courtyard, which is where the Israelite people could come, and there was an altar there. And that's where they'd make sacrifices when they disobeyed God. Then you see the actual tent. And the front room is where the priest would go. And in there was a table, there was a lampstand, there were normal common things you'd find in someone's house in that day. And then there was the back room, and this is where God dwelt. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, and this is where God supposedly dwelled. But in Exodus chapter 26, verse 33, we see this. God tells Moses, hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. This curtain will separate the holy place, that's the front room, from the most holy place where God will dwell. So you see, there are two rooms in this tent that God has Moses build. But God puts a separation between the two rooms. And his presence is not able to dwell with his people completely. There's a physical limitation. There's a barrier there. And so God is taking steps to get closer and closer to his people. But they still have to offer sacrifices for their bad behavior. And there's a physical veil that's separating them from actually experiencing God's presence. 
This isn't the first time that we see God limiting his presence from his people. If you think back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God creates heavens and earth, and then on the earth, he creates the dry land, then he creates the Garden of Eden, he creates the animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and then his pinnacle of creation, humanity. He puts them in the middle of the garden, and that's where he dwells with them. He gets to know them, and they have this wonderful creator-creation relationship where they worship him and walk with him. But as we all know, that doesn't last long. And God has one command for them. Do not eat of a particular tree. And what do humans do? They eat of that tree. And this disrupts this harmonious relationship that they had with God. And God has to put up limitations. So he casts them out of the garden. And so when we're looking at the tabernacle, we see God reversing this curse. Where he has once limited his presence, here he is trying to enact ways for his people to get back into relationship with him. But as we saw, these are steps. This is a progression. He's getting closer and closer to his people, but there are still a couple of limitations. And so as we continue through Israel's history, we get to another point, another step, another progression where God is getting closer to his people, and that is at the temple, the building of the temple. And most of us know the story of David. He, against all odds, is appointed by God to be the king of Israel. And he's one of the greatest kings that ever lived. And he unified this nation. And one day, after returning victorious from battle, King David settled in his palace. He was resting there in peace. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, it says that he leaned over the prophet Nathan, and he said this, Here I am, living in this house of cedar, this great palace, while the ark of God remains in a tent. You see, God, uh, David had multiplied great wealth through his success. And he was now living in this great palace because he was victorious. He was a great king. But God was still living in that house that he built back in Exodus. And you can imagine, this tent was mobile. And if you've ever used a tent year after year, it just starts to get a little bit worn down. And so this tent, was God's house, was probably getting a little bit worn down. And here David is in this palace. And so David says, no. God, I want to build for you a house that proclaims your greatness. Because I realize that you are the one who gave me all this wealth. You are the one who makes me victorious in battle. So I want to make your name great. I want to praise you through the building of this temple. You can see why David is called a man after God's own heart. Unfortunately, we all know David falls, commits sin, and falls out of that wonderful relationship. And David doesn't actually get to build this temple. But his son Solomon does. And man, is it a thing of beauty. You take these blueprints here in Exodus, and you just magnify them ten times. And it's just this extraordinary dwelling place for God. It's a place where people could see the magnificent greatness of their Lord. But if you look at the structure and the basic layout, it's the same as the one in Exodus. There are three distinct tiers, and the Israelites still have to make sacrifices when they disobey God. And there's still a veil separating them from actually experiencing God's presence. And so for centuries, God continues to interact with his people in this dwelling place. But the Israelites can get more and more disobedience. And it leads them to being captive, taken captive by their enemies. And they lose possession of that great temple. But we all know that God had another plan in mind. 
And right in the first chapter of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, God starts to reveal his new plan to get close to his people. You see, a baby is going to be born, and his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God sent his very own son in the form of a human to live amongst his people. Jesus then lived a perfect life, and after three years of ministry, he was tried unjustly, and he was sentenced to death. Let's pick up in Jesus' story. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 45. If you have your Bibles, turn there. At this point of the story, Jesus has already been tried unjustly. And this is the final moments before he gives up his spirit. Starting at verse 45, it says this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing here heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Don't you see what just happened? In this earth-shattering cataclysmic event, the veil has been torn. The partial, the limited dwelling of God with his people has now been altered. The restrictions have been lifted. And because of the blood of Jesus, everyone who believes in him can have full access to the presence of God. What an amazing and powerful story of God's unceasing love for his people. What God has done here through the sacrifice of Jesus has profound implications for us living under the new covenant today. By the veil being torn, we now have complete access with God in ways that the Old Testament Israelites could have only have dreamed of. Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 12, says this. He says, Remember that at a time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Complete access to God has been bought for you by the blood of Jesus. The veil has been torn, and you now get to enjoy God, the creator, in all of his splendor. But I have a question for you, church. Are you living in that? It's easy for us to come to the Bible, read this thick theology, see the progression, see the steps that God takes to draw us near. But it's more than just knowledge. God doesn't just want to teach you about these things. He doesn't just want to show you the plan. He wants to actually draw you near. We've seen God's redemptive plan from the garden, through the tabernacle in Exodus, through the temple, and now the amazing privilege we've been given because of what Jesus did on the cross. But God wants you to, he wants to know you. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to get to know you intimately. And are you experiencing that? Oftentimes, if we're honest, I think a lot of us can find ourselves living in a Zoom call style relationship with God. And I'm taking 
classes in seminary right now, and one of my classes is on Zoom. We meet one hour a week, and we talk with each other. But it's a great class because we get to share our ministry experiences, and we get to talk about what's really going on, how we're feeling, kind of this deep stuff that we get to open up about in, the, in that little conversation over Zoom. But it's a Zoom call. I think you've all have experienced Zoom calls and what it's like. It can be a little bit glitchy, right? And while you do get to see the presence of the people, you get to hear their voice, it's not the same as a physical relationship. Because I only get one hour a week to talk to these people. I'm not bringing them into my life. They're not, they don't know my wife, my son even. And oftentimes, we put God in that kind of Zoom call style relationship. I mean, think about it. We come to Sunday mornings, and that's the time that we call him. We get to see his presence. We get to see what he wants to do in our lives. We get to talk to him face-to-face, right? Then we go about our week, thinking about other things. We close that laptop, put it in the corner, and we live our lives a little bit separate. A little bit separate from what God is doing. But why do we do that? What's holding you back? Don't you want to feel the closeness of God? Don't you want to experience his amazing love for you? So why are you letting something hold you back? Is it a sin in your life? Is it a stronghold or an addiction that you aren't willing to give up? Is it your own selfishness of materialism that you're too afraid to let go of? Are you acting like my two-year-old, thinking that you know best? Are you throwing fits when things don't go your way? Whatever it is, I can tell you it's not worth missing out on this love that God has for you. This tabernacle in Exodus was a revelation of how God wanted to be worshipped by his people. But if you read the tabernacle, you notice that it doesn't mention singing once. And I think often we equate worship with singing or maybe the Sunday morning service. But that's not it. See, the worship that we get under the new covenant is liberating. It gives us freedom of expression. And it's not limited to a one-time act on Sunday morning. No, it should be an everyday act of worship. So I want to read for you what Paul has to say about worship in Romans chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, he says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. There is so much more that God wants for us in our worship. He wants worship to be an act of the heart, where you are sacrificing your own desires to let God's desires become your own. I think we miss that in our self-centered culture, where everything is all about me. But what would it look for us, look like for us to give that up, to serve others wholeheartedly and passionately, to view God's kingdom as a priority, not our own selfish personal gain. Because that's what worship is. So right now, I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up. And we want to give you an opportunity to respond in worship. We want you to respond to whatever God is trying to speak to your life right now. And so we're going to give you some time and some space to reflect and meditate. And to pray to God. They're going to sing a song over you. And just want you to spend some time with God and think about those areas where you can reorient your life. Where you can move from selfish pursuits to a life that truly worships God. Let me pray for us to open.